Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, democracy, for all its strengths, democracy has some real weaknesses. For instance, it, it, it lends itself to the establishment of a fractured populace. People choose their side, left or right, and as those sides drift farther and farther apart, the people that have chosen those sides also drift farther and farther away from each other. You can end up with a very fractured population. Your, your population can fall to pieces, like what we've seen a great deal of in the States in the past few years, but also very much in Canada. And as we see uh, intensifying as, as rumors of a fall election swirl around, this fracturing within democracies is, is a great deal of the reason that Winston Churchill is said to have said something like, democracy is the worst form of government, with the exception of all the others that have been tried. See, in a democracy, nobody gets their way. The government is always being pulled in, in several different directions at once. The political leaders are always in campaign mode. It, it works, but barely. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of our Father, has no such problems. There is one ruler, one king, one sovereign. Canada is a nation with, with almost 38 million people. That's, that's 38 million people more or less convinced of their own individual sovereignty. The kingdom of heaven, though, the kingdom for which we pray, the kingdom of God, has just one sovereign. And this is the sovereign to whom we come in our prayers saying, your kingdom come. We submit ourselves to his perfect rule. Looking beyond the faulty and the failing political systems of our world and, and even beyond much of the tribalism that, that, that we see in the local church. And we look beyond those to, to the greater kingdom, the greatest, the final, the complete and perfect kingdom. The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ where he will reign forever and ever. In our, in our second petition of the Lord's Prayer, we pray for the expansion of the great king's kingdom. We'll look at this petition under three headings. First, we pray, may Christ's kingdom increase. Second, we pray, may Christ's enemies decrease. And third, we pray, may Christ's kingdom come in all its perfect fullness. What we're asking, first of all, when we pray this petition, is that Christ's kingdom will increase. And we ask for this in two areas. First, may Christ's kingdom increase in our hearts through his word and spirit. And second, may Christ's kingdom increase as the church is built up. So first, may Christ bring the kingdom in, in the hearts of his subjects. And second, may Christ bring his kingdom by, by building up the body, the church. The Catechism phrases the first part of this request in this way. Your kingdom come, that is, so rule us by your word and spirit, that more and more we submit to you. We pray that the word, by the power of the spirit, will, will come into our hearts, will flood our hearts, resulting in lives that, that are properly oriented, lives that are oriented toward the praise of our great king, filling all of our life in every part with praise, that, that, that our whole being may proclaim God's being and his ways. Not praying for the lip of praise alone or, or even just a praising heart, but asking for lives that, that are made up with praise in, in every part. 
Christ's rule by word and spirit has, has been active from the very beginning. When, when, for example, even as the world descended into chaos before the flood, Christ's people were holding on to the promises of the gospel. And then after the flood, we have the example of Abram, who, who heard God's word to him, and by faith, by the work of the Spirit, not only left his home and his family, but was also willing, when God commanded, to, to sacrifice his only son. We see Christ ruling his people by, by word and spirit in the life of Moses, when, when the law was given, when, when a way to God was given to the people of Israel. But in all of these Old Testament examples, the word appeared as through fogged glass, in types and shadows. And the spirit was not given to the people in full measure, not until the coming of Christ was the kingdom fully initiated. Not until the word was made flesh did the kingdom begin to dawn in its new covenant form. Not until the son was conceived by the Holy Spirit did the king come into his kingdom. And after that happened, at the very beginning of his ministry on earth, Jesus announced the coming of his kingdom in its final form, saying, saying in Mark 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And Jesus spent, the, uh, Jesus spent his time on earth preaching the coming of the kingdom. And then after he had been executed, after he'd been raised to life again, then he took his seat as king of the church sending the Spirit both to fill his people and to guide them in the writing of the, of the New Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, God had promised his rebellious people that for the sake of his holy name, he would not only restore them to fellowship with him, but he would also change their very natures and inclinations. In Ezekiel 36, he promises this, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And, and I will remove the, the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then in the very next chapter, in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24, God promises people the very same thing, only in different words. My servant David, God promises, my servant David will be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. God promised his rebellious people that they would become willing subjects of his through the work of his spirit and under the rule of his shepherd. Though they had all gone astray like a, like a scattered flock of sheep, he, he would gather them by his chosen shepherd, by his anointed Messiah, by great David's greater son. He would gather them under the rule of his Christ and make them willing subjects through his spirit. And beloved, this is the first thing that we pray for in this petition. Make us willing subjects. With the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 5, we say, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Help us to keep your laws. Rule us by your word. We freely admit that our ways, our natural inclinations, are not the ways of God. Our will is not in accord with God's revealed will. With the psalmist in Psalm 143, verse 10, we pray, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your spirit lead me on level ground. 
Lead us by your spirit, we pray. Rule us by your spirit. We admit to God that our struggle against our flesh is an ongoing one. We have not yet achieved the final victory. Our nature continues to rebel against the will of God and continues to frustrate our every attempt to lead holy lives. There is a war going on in our hearts, and we ask that God's Spirit will be sent to rescue our failing spirits. And so the questions have to be asked. Are we being led on level ground by the Spirit? Or are we choosing our own bumpy roads? Are we open to this leading? Or do we have a hard time submitting to the kingship of Christ in, for example, the area of anger? Are we allowing bitterness and resentment to rule in our hearts instead of Christ as king? Are, are we holding on to the wrong things that people have done to us instead of being ready to forgive them at the drop of a hat? If so, then this is a prayer that we desperately need to pray. We need to go to the Father and ask him to, to flood the unconquered territory in our hearts with the kingdom of heaven. We need to ask him to write his rule, uh, write his laws on our hearts, changing us from the inside by the power of the Spirit, introducing his rule where we have allowed Satan to rule for far too long. So when we pray your kingdom come, the first thing we ask is that our own hearts would be changed by the Spirit and that we would be made willing subjects of the great King, submitting ourselves to his word. The second way we ask Christ to increase his kingdom is by, is by preserving and increasing the church. So first we ask, rule in your subjects. And second we ask, rule your church. And we have a beautiful picture of what this looks like in verses 1 through 3 of our scripture text. Verse 1, the city belongs to God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Back in the Old Testament, Mount Zion was the mountain of God. It was the special place where he was to be worshipped, the place where he made himself known to his people. It's that mountain where, where God spoke to Abraham and provided a ram in place of Abraham's son Isaac. It's the mountain where David interceded for the people of Israel in 2 Samuel 24 and stopped the judgment of God. It's the place where God told, the, uh, God told King David to have his son Solomon build the temple. It's the place where generation after generation after generation of faithful Israelites came to worship, to offer their sacrifices. It was the place where God displayed his glory cloud to the people of Israel. But despite all this, it was just a shadow, just a shadow of the greater Mount Zion to come, the church of Christ. And so we might paraphrase the psalmist in verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, uh, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the church of Jesus Christ, his holy people. And then in verse 2, the city belongs to God, the King. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. The church is that place where the rule of the great King is recognized. It's where God is honored as King. It's the place where the joy of living under the rule of the great King is felt, a joy that we pray will expand 
through the preaching of the gospel. We know that only God's reign will bring peace and joy to the people of earth. As believers, we experience this joy, and we want to spread this joy to all people. Verse 3 of this chapter then tells us what's so special about this people among whom God is known as king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. See, the city of Jerusalem wasn't terribly impressive. It was a fair size, sure, but, but compared to the truly great cities of the ancient world, like Damascus or, or Babylon or Nineveh, it, it didn't look terribly impressive. But because God was in her midst, she was greater than any of those other cities. And the same is true of Christ's church. She's, she's disorganized, she's fractured, she's weak in the eyes of the world, and, and also in the eyes of many Christians. And yet, Christ's church is the mightiest body on this earth because within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Since God is in the midst of her, unmoved, her walls shall stand. For God will be her early help when trouble is at hand. And this is also Christ's promise to his church in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We can pray that our Father preserve and increase his church because we have already been promised that A, the church will be built, and B, no power on earth and no power from the bowels of hell can take their stand against the church. Sure, we see setbacks sometimes when our brothers and sisters throughout the world are, are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But even there, we see the victory of Christ's kingdom. Knowing that even if they lose their lives in the persecution, as Jesus promised, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see setbacks sometimes when those who, who, we, who we thought were brothers and sisters turn out to be double agents trying to, to take apart the church from the inside through false teachings. But, but as we know, <coughs> excuse me, as we know, as the Spirit promises, promises in 2 Peter 2 verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God will take care, God will protect his church. But even though God promises to, to, to protect and, and build up his church, those facts don't, don't render our prayers unnecessary. We are promised that the church will be built, that the church will be expanded, and that Christ's subjects will be brought into conformance to his will through his word and spirit. But all of those promises come about as a result of prayer. If you remember Lord's Day 45, I know, I know it's been a while, but prayer is necessary. God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank him for them. The means that God uses to give his gifts to his church is prayer. God uses the prayers of his people to give his people his gifts. And so, beloved in Christ, according to, according to the command of Christ, keep praying for the peace and the prosperity of Jerusalem. Pray for the church's safety. Pray for her peace. Pray for her flourishing. 
For your brothers and companions' sake, seek her good in your prayers. Pray for the increase of Christ's kingdom, both in our hearts and in his church. But in this second petition of the Lord's Prayer, we're not just asking for peace, prosperity, and the submission of God's people to God's reign. We're also asking for the destruction of every force that rises up against the rule of Christ. Uh, in, in our scripture text in Psalm 48, we have this portrayed for us in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4, for behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. God's enemies, the church's enemies, they band together against God's purposes and against God's people. Then verse 5, as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. As soon as they saw what? Well, as, as soon as they saw that God was his people's fortress. As soon as they realized that they were not rising up against people, but against God, they took off running. Verse 5, trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. These, these foreign kings, intent on rebelling against God, intent on, on destroying his people, they just lose it. They had all these plans, they, they, they coordinated their efforts, they, they had brought together all the power they could muster, but just the sight of God's presence among his people is enough to send them running. There is no way that any of the church's enemies can continue to stand against the chosen people of God. For a while, it, it may and it will look like they have the upper hand, but God will always have the final victory. What we have in verse 7 is, is likely a reference to what we have recorded for us in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 35 through 37. In that passage, King Jehoshaphat, one of the good kings of Judah, he allies with the wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they build a bunch of trading ships together. But this alliance of his remnant with a wicked nation was something that God could not stand. And so he sends a prophet to announce that God will wreck that merchant fleet. And of course he did. By the east wind, the psalmist announces, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. God's work of destroying the enemies of the church is not limited to, 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 the, to the wolves outside the church. It also covers those wolves that sneak into the flock, those wolves in sheep's clothing. And in our study of the, of the second petition, this prayer against the enemies of God's rule falls under two headings. First, destroy the devil's work. And second, destroy every rebel force and every conspiracy against the word. These two petitions began being answered in the Garden of Eden immediately after the devil started the rebellion on earth. With the fall of humanity, God gave the promise that despite the rebellion of his people, he would send someone from Eve's line to crush the devil. And then when Jesus showed up several thousand years later, a good chunk of his ministry was, was the work of quite literally destroying the work of the devil, healing diseases, preaching truth, and of course, Casting out demons. And that last one, casting out demons, is, is the very clearest indication of the coming of the kingdom. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 28 and 29. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus, first by resisting the devil's temptations, and then by casting out Satan's minions, demonstrated that even the most powerful enemies of God's kingdom were powerless against him. But Jesus' greatest Jesus' greatest victory so far over the forces of Satan occurred when Christ died on Good Friday. It was a day that looked like Satan's greatest triumph, even greater than his triumph back in Eden. But as Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15 puts it, you who were dead in your trespasses and and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. By dying on the cross in place of sinners, thereby fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, Jesus Christ publicly humiliated the devil and all of his demons. The church father Augustine put it this way, the devil jumped for joy when Christ died. And by the very death of Christ, the devil was overcome. He took, as it were, the bait in the mousetrap. He he rejoiced at the death, thinking himself death's commander. But that which caused his joy dangled the bait before him. The Lord's cross was the devil's mousetrap. The bait which caught him was the death of the Lord. And so here we are as the church, fighting a battle that we know will be won, fighting a battle that we know is won. And yet we pray, knowing that though the devil has been chained, we still need to wage war, bringing in Christ's kingdom. We have a duty to expand his rule by pushing back the forces, the arguments, the opinions that wage war against our Lord. Not, not with political campaigns or lobbying, not with, not with swords or guns. All these things are of the flesh. Rather, we wield the weapons that God has given us. Weapons to destroy strongholds, to to, to bring down lofty arguments and opinions raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive in obedience to Christ, relying not on our own ingenuity or on our own strength, but on the strength and the wisdom of God. After all, we know that we stand no, no, no chance on our own. We, we, we push back the darkness by spreading the gospel of the kingdom of light, but we rely on our Lord to send his spirit to illuminate the darkness of people's hearts. This is not a war that we can win. It's a war that we rely on God to win. He uses us, no doubt, but it, it's a war that God himself will ultimately win. But we can We can, indeed we must, remain ready for this battle at all times. Looking forward to that time when, as Paul tells us in Romans 16, 20, when the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. And so we pray, Father, bring it all down. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force that dares to rebel against you and every force that conspires against your rule by attempting to bring down your word.
So we pray for the expanse of Christ's rule, the downfall of Christ's enemies. But we pray these two things with an end goal in sight. We pray, may your kingdom come in all its fullness. We see glimpses of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven here, but but we know that it's not here in all of its fullness. It's what the psalmist tells us in our scripture text again. In verse 8, as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. The psalmist has heard of, and the psalmist has seen great victories. He's seen God put enemies to flight. He's seen God cleanse his own people. But he knows that all of these temporary victories are just types and shadows of the great victory to come. Notice he he doesn't say which God has established forever in verse 8. He says which God will establish forever. Then look at verses 12 through 14. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The psalmist points his hearers to to, to the great defenses of Mount Zion. Look at those towers, Look, look at those walls, look at that fortress. God is our fortress, and he will be forever. See, the city of Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. The walls failed. The towers were a, were, were a vain hope. The fortresses fell to the armies of Babylon. The temple was destroyed. Its, its articles were, were, were carried off as spoil by those invading armies. The city itself was not the hope of the psalmist. Nor is the church itself the hope of the Christian. They are both significant only insofar as they are the places where God makes himself known to his people as their God. And they they are both tools in the hands of God, tools for expanding his rule. But their reason for existing is not in in what they can hope to accomplish for themselves. Jerusalem's walls were a a vain hope if God was not defending her. The church's programs, the the, the council's ideas, the the, the worship that we do are are all just so much chasing after the wind if the Spirit is not guiding them, if the Spirit is not empowering them. And so the psalmist looked beyond the city of Jerusalem to the final glory of God. And the church looks beyond itself as well, looking to the fulfillment in the new Jerusalem, a city without a man-made temple, made holy and made secure by God himself, our God forever and ever who will guide us forever. And so we pray for the greater Mount Zion, the the fulfillment of the kingdom of God as the psalmist knew it as we know it today. We pray, rule us by your word and spirit, preserve and increase your church, destroy the devil's work, destroy every force that revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word, but we don't leave it there. No, there's an end in sight. We look forward to the final consummation of the kingdom in in which there will be no doubt about who is king of kings, who is lord of lords. A a kingdom in in which God alone is worshipped, in which sin, the devil, and our struggle against the flesh are no more. In which the church in in all of her glory is revealed, so so hidden, so marred, so, 
so dirty now, but, but, but then shining and, and adorned in the, in the robes her husband has given her. And so we work with that end in sight, hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. As 2 Peter 3 verse 12 puts it, through our lives of holiness and godliness, demonstrating the, the kingly rule of Christ in our hearts, and hastening it by the, by the preaching of the gospel, as Matthew 24, 14 puts it, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, after which the end will come. And so we pray for the greater Mount Zion. We pray for the new Jerusalem. We, we pray for our, our Father's forever kingdom, for the full coming of the kingdom. When, as 1 Corinthians 15, 24 describes it, the end comes. When Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power. Christ is ruling his kingdom through word and spirit. And he is destroying both his enemies and ours now. So that in the end, he can hand off that kingdom perfect and unstained to his father. So we pray for that final kingdom. And we also pray for our Father's eternal kingship. His forever reign. When God will be all in all. But 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28 describes. When all things are subjected to Christ. And when the Son will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. That's the promise we're given. The promise of our king's reign over all. And our prayer in response to this promise is what the apostle John gives in Revelation 22.20. He who testifies to these things, that is Christ, says, surely I am coming soon. And we respond with, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's sing as our song of response.